London Calling. London Walks Connecting. This is London. Story time. History time. London Walks. Streets ahead. There are approximately 500 different London Walks. You're about to hear a guide's introduction to one of the 500. The walk in question is one of our specials. It comes up now and then. Anyway, I think what you're about to hear might be the best, the most appealing, the most delightful, the most enticing introduction on Planet London Walks. It's a little piece by Anne about her William Morris and friends walk up in Hammersmith. I mean, how do you go wrong with an introduction in which a guide sets before you an invitation to... Join me to walk along the most beautiful stretch of the River Thames in London. An introduction that's like a Christmas stocking stuffed with any number of agreeable surprises and delicacies and succulent goodies. By way of example, we learn from Anne that William Morris's opinion of Parliament was that the building should be emptied of politicians and filled with manure. Okay. Now you know who's concocted this little wunderbar of an introduction to a very special walk. Yes, it's the wonderful Anne, one of the very brightest stars in the London Walks firmament. I think of Anne as the good fairy of London Walks. She's beautiful, she's fun, she's beyond bright, and she makes everything dazzle. And she's funny. Every story she tells, every place she goes... Everything she points her magic wand at sparkles. Anne's William Morris and Friends Walk makes its next appearance on January 14th. But with this little piece, there are wheels within wheels. Anne's intro, which you're about to hear, is like one of those beautiful floating lamps the Japanese send down a river in their Toro Nagashi ceremony. Anne set this water lamp afloat a couple of years ago here on the London Walks podcast. And here's the thing. It went missing. Drifted off somewhere. We don't know where. We weren't even aware that it had gone missing. It was a couple of years ago. Hundreds of water lanterns, London Walks podcasts, had been set afloat since that day. And then an American walker, Pat, was leafing through the London Calling back catalog, so to speak. The William Morris and Friends podcast caught her eye. She clicked on it to have a listen, and nothing was forthcoming. That particular water lantern had wandered off. Pat wrote to us, said, I'd love to hear it. Can you rescue it and put it back up? That was a couple of months ago. It's taken that long, but here it is, Pat. And the story doesn't end there. Pat also asked if we could run the walk in February, which is when she'll be making her next trip to London. She said if we could run it then, she'd plan her trip around that date. Well, there weren't any plans to run it in February, not so close to its January 14th outing. But there are plans now. Anne's going to put one on, especially for Pat, for when she's here. This kind of thing warms the cockles of my heart. I love it when we can do stuff like this, come through like this for an individual walker. It's happened a few times over the years. Obviously, it wouldn't be possible across the board, 
Pre-COVID, London Walks was taking probably 250,000 people a year on one or more London Walks. And needless to say, we couldn't individually tailor 250,000 walk schedules. Happily, that impossibly tall order is not set before us. But just occasionally, Pat's request for a William Morris walk in February is the most recent occasion. Just occasionally, people do ask if we can run a certain walk on a certain day. And quite often, we're able to oblige. Not always, but quite often. It's a matter of pride and considerable feel-good for us that we've got that sort of flexibility, that we can often make it happen for people, that we can come through for them, that we're small enough and nimble enough to be that responsive. That's so London walks. Anyway, so much for the backstory. Here is Anne's floating lantern, her introduction to her William Morrison friend's walk. Join me to walk along the most beautiful stretch of the River Thames in London and look back more than a century when that towering figure in the arts and crafts movement, William Morris, was living here in an 18th century house he had renamed Kelmscott House. He thought its existing name, The Retreat, brought to mind a lunatic asylum. He and his family lived here for 18 years until his death in 1896. Morris is best known nowadays as a designer of fabrics and wallpaper, designs that have never been out of production in more than a century. But he was also an author, a poet, and a designer of tapestries. As he said, if a chap can't compose an epic poem while he's weaving a tapestry, he'd better shut up. He'll never do any good at all. Morris believed that the 19th century had lost its way. Workers produced items in factories, where on a production line they had no responsibility for the finished item, maybe merely tightening a screw. He felt that we should return to craftsmen and women who could create an object, developing their skills and enjoying the satisfaction of their work, made by the people, for the people, as a joy for the maker and the user. The company started by Morris and his friends tried to put these ideals into practice. Morris & Co. was the company to go to for the discriminating 19th century house owner. Curtains, carpets, furniture, tapestries, glassware, stained glass could all be obtained at a price. Morris & Co. decorated rooms in St James's Palace at Balmoral and later were to provide the cut velvet for the walls of the ill-fated Titanic. But Morris himself had become increasingly unhappy about, as he put it, ministering to the swinish luxury of the rich. He didn't give up the day job, but he did become a committed socialist, designing posters for the emerging socialist party, supporting them in court appearances, haranguing the crowds, well, maybe small crowds, in the square in Hammersmith, and holding socialist meetings in the coach house of his home. Attendees included Marx's daughter Eleanor, and George Bernard Shaw. His opinion of Parliament was that the building should be emptied of politicians and filled with manure. Extraordinarily, it was suggested that he should become Poet Laureate. We think of Morris as a bewhiskered, serious 19th century sage. But in his younger days, his party piece was to get the girls to pull him up from the floor by tugging on his curly hair. His bank manager warned him to limit consumption of wine in the household to just two and a half bottles a day, but for financial, not dietary reasons. 
I haven't mentioned in this brief account his skill at embroidery, his translations of Icelandic sagas, his painting, and his determination to learn crafts himself. He struggled with the only tapestry he wove, acanthus and vine, renamed by him in frustration cabbage and vine. And he went up to Staffordshire to learn vegetable as opposed to chemical dyeing from a firm in Leek. Picture him navy blue up to the armpits from indigo dye. Morris liked the idea that the water passing his door in Hammersmith had passed by Kelmscott Manor, the house he leased in the Cotswolds. The family did the journey between the two homes by river on occasion, Morris doing the cooking while his wife Janie sat embroidering in the stern. And this riverside in Hammersmith was to prove attractive to other craft workers, some who became friends of Morris, others who moved there after his death. The printers, jewellery makers, silversmiths, engravers and artists were all affected by his instruction. Have nothing in your house that you do not know to be useful or believe to be beautiful. You'll see this nowadays on tea towels. What would Morris have said to that? You've been listening to This is London, the London Walks podcast, emanating from www.walks.com, home of London Walks, London's signature walking tour company, London's local, time-honored, fiercely independent, family-owned, just the right size walking tour company. And as long as we're at it, London's multi-award winning walking tour company. Indeed, London's only award winning walking tour company. And here's the secret. London Walks is essentially run as a guides cooperative. That's the key to everything. It's the reason we're able to attract and keep the best guides in London. You can get schlubbers to do this for 20 pounds a walk, but you cannot get world-class guides, let alone accomplished professionals. It's not rocket science. You get what you pay for. And just as surely, you also get what you don't pay for. Back in 1968, when we got started, we quickly came to a fork in the road we had to answer a searching question. Do we want to make the most money? Or do we want to be the best walking tour company in the world? You want to make the most money, you go the schlubber's route. You want to be the best walking tour company on the planet. You do whatever you have to do to attract and keep the best guides in London. You want them guiding for you, not for somebody else. Bears repeating, the way we're structured, a guides cooperative, is the key to the whole thing. It's the reason for all those awards. It's the reason we're able, uniquely, to front our walks with accomplished, in many cases, distinguished professionals. By way of example, Stuart Purvis, the former editor and subsequently CEO of Independent Television News and Lisa Honan, who had a distinguished career as a diplomat. Lisa was the governor of St. Helena, the island where Napoleon breathed his last and, some say, had his penis amputated. Napoleon didn't feel a thing, if things the most used. He was dead. 
Stuart and Lisa, both of them CBEs, are just a couple of our headline acts. Or take our Ripper Walk. It's the creation of the world's leading expert on Jack the Ripper, Donald Rumbelow, the author of the definitive book on the subject. Britain's most distinguished crime historian, Donald is, in the words of the Jack the Ripper A to Z, internationally recognized as the leading authority on Jack the Ripper. Donald's emeritus now, but he's still the guiding light on our Ripper Walk. He curates the walk. He trains up and mentors our Ripper Walk guides, fields any and all questions they throw at him. The London Walk's all-star team of guides includes a former London mayor. It includes the former chief music critic for the Evening Standard. It includes the chair of the Association of Professional Tour Guides and the former chair of the Guild of Guides. It includes barristers, doctors, geologists, criminal defense lawyers, Royal Shakespeare Company actors, a bevy of MVPs, Oscar winners, people who've won the big one, the Guide of the Year Award. Well, you get the idea. As that travel writer famously put it, if this were a golf tournament, every name on the leaderboard would be a London Walks guide. And as we put it, London Walks guides make the new familiar and the familiar new. And on that agreeable note, come then, let us go forward together on some great London Walks. And that's by way of saying... Good walking and good Londoning, one and all. See you next time.